If you would take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians chapter 2. Book of Galatians chapter number 2. We have been looking at Galatians and considering what the Lord through the pen of the Apostle Paul said to the churches at Galatia and how it applies to us, the 21st century New Testament Christian. The book of Galatians was written because the churches in that area, the churches of that region were in a theological crisis. The essential truth of justification by faith rather than by human works was being denied by the Judaizers there. The Judaizers were legalistic Jews who insisted that Christians must keep the law, must keep the Mosaic law. In particular, Judaizers insisted on circumcision as a requirement for Gentiles who wished to be saved. Judaism, um, also they believed that uh, they must convert to Judaism first. And that would make them eligible to become a Christian. When the Apostle Paul learned that this heresy was taking place, it was being taught in the Galatian churches, he composed this epistle to emphasize Christian liberty. Our liberty in Christ to counter the perversion of the gospel that the Judaizers promoted. You will recall last Lord's Day we saw how Paul shifted in the letter from of his fiery defense uh, of his apostleship. He goes from talking about he, 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 how there are people there that were dis- distorting the gospel in chapter 1 and how he marveled that they would even listen to them. And then he shifts and begins to talk about de- defending his apostleship. The Judaizers were confusing the members of the Galatian churches and Paul describes to them that they, can't, they can trust what they've been taught Originally, when he was there a year prior, Paul told them that the gospel that he preached to them, that he taught to them, that he grounded them in was the true gospel and that he did not get that gospel from man. He got it directly from the author of the gospel himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this section that we're in, Paul is defending his apostleship. He's telling the church there at Galatia, my message is God's message. And this is God's message to you. I'm just the instrument that God used to tell you. So this morning, as we continue to look at Paul's defense, now beginning in chapter 2, I want to read to you hearing verses 1 through 10, but we're only going to get through 1 through 5 that we're going to consider And you can either title this message uh, approved by the apostles or only one gospel. So look at me at Galatians 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And I went up because of Revelation. And I laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this was because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had snuck in to spy out our freedom, which we have, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. 
but we did not yield in subjection to them for even a moment. So that truth, so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, uh, had been to the circumcised, for he who worked in Peter unto his apostleship to the circumcised worked in me also unto the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they, go, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would pour out your blessing, not just upon the reading of your word, not just upon the hearing of your word, but also upon its proclamation. God, we pray that you would take what is written here and that you would make it applicable to every heart, to every life. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us wills to obey. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All cultures have something that is known as rites of passage. A rite of passage, the textbook definition of a rite of passage is a ritual, event, or experience that marks or constitutes a major milestone or change in a person's life. Rites of passage celebrate the, 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 the social movement of individuals or, or, or groups out of one group and into another or uh, out of one status into another status for an individual or community. If you've seen movies or, or documentaries, you know that tribal cultures all over the world have these rite of passage types, ceremonies that young men go through when they reach a certain age. Even Jewish, the Jewish culture to this day, Jewish boys upon their 12th birthday go through what it, some, have something that's called a bar mitzvah. It's a big celebration that celebrates the, the passing of that young man from boyhood into manhood. And here in the States, we have rites of passage as well. We look at things like getting a driver's license as a rite of passage for a, uh, a, a teenager. Graduating from high school is seen as a rite of passage or even getting married, having your first child. Then there are unwritten rites of passage, like when a son tests his father. Not necessarily in a bad way, but the son comes up wrestling with his dad, right? Early on, he's no match for his dad. Dad just pushes him away, thump him on top of the head. He can't handle dad. But as time passes, and that boy grows, it becomes a little more even. Until the son's strength increases and at the same time dad's decreases and the son is able to handle his father. And it's usually about that time dad has to get an equalizer. You know, I told Riley recently, we were messing around. I said, look, I said, I'm getting to the point now where it hurts too much to fight fair. I'm going to have to cheat. <laughs> In the Bible, there, there are 
two rites of passages that stand out to us. One is that Old Covenant act of circumcision first given to Abraham to identify the chosen people of God. And then there is the New Covenant act of baptism where the person is being baptized, declaring that the, the, they are not, uh, they're, they're separating from the world, declaring to the world that they have not just moved on from the old life, but they have in fact died to it. They have died to the old way of life. The act of baptism, a person identifies with the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, and they go down in the water, being buried with him in baptism of the death, and come out being raised in the newness of life. In this passage, this whole, this whole passage of Paul defending his apostleship and coming into chapter 12, the apostle Paul kind of details for us his own rite of passage as he defends his apostleship. We have seen how Paul was chosen by God, called by God, trained by God for the purpose of being an apostle and spreading the gospel. And now in chapter 2, Paul continues the defense. He continues that defense by detailing not only was he called by God, but because he was called by God, he was accepted by the apostles. He got the stamp of approval by the apostles, and that stamp of approval for Paul was like a rite of passage. Now I want to draw out for you from these 10 verses by way of an outline five things, but we're only going to get through two. In verses 1 through 2, we see the reverence of Paul. In verses 3 through 5, we see the resolve of Paul. In verses 6 through 7, the regardlessness of Paul. Paul said God shows no partiality. Paul said he didn't either. And then we see in verses 8 and 9 the reserve of Paul and then finally in verse 10 the readiness of Paul. But we're only going to get through the first two. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 as we consider Paul's reverence. We consider his reverence. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along also. After 14 years. This trip to Jerusalem was after Paul's initial trip that came after his three years in Arabia. Paul had gone to Jerusalem, spent 15 days with Peter, and then Paul goes off to begin work in Syria and Cilicia. This return trip of Jerusalem is believed to be the Jerusalem Council, which is detailed for us in Acts chapter 15. That council was called to solve this issue of Gentile salvation. The early church leadership led by the apostles got together to hash out whether or not Jewish convert, uh, Gentile converts had to first convert to Judaism and be circumcised before they could be eligible to become Christians. And we see Paul goes up there after 14 years and he takes some folks with him. He takes Barnabas. Barnabas, who was Paul's first ally in the faith. Barnabas vouched for Paul before the apostles and became his traveling companion on his first missionary journey. And then he takes, he also takes Titus. He takes Titus with him. Titus, like Timothy, was one of Paul's spiritual children, one of his sons in the faith. He came along as proof, as proof of the gospel that Paul was preaching. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem council, 
He takes Barnabas and Titus with him. He takes Barnabas to affirm what Paul has, what, what Paul has been preaching and what has been happening in, to, in Syria and Cilicia. Paul can look, point to Barnabas and say, look, don't just take my word for it. Here's a man right here who can give testimony of it. And then he takes Titus as well. He's like, hey, don't just take our word for it. Here's proof of what God is doing there through the gospel that I'm preaching. And that begs the question, well, why did Paul go? How did he know to go to Jerusalem? How did he know to go there for this council? We're told, he says there in verse 2, because of revelation. Paul said that he went up by a revelation. This revelation from God was the voice of the Holy Spirit. Paul refers to his divine commissioning to refute any suggestion by the Judaizers that they had sent Paul to Jerusalem to have the apostles correct his doctrine. That's what the, the, the Judaizers were trying to say. Hey, Paul went to the Jerusalem council so he could get corrected by the original 11. That's why he went there. He went there so they could set him straight. And no, Paul says, no, I went there by direct revelation. God told me to go there. I was not summoned by them. I was told to go by God. It was because of revelation that he went up to Jerusalem. And you always go up to Jerusalem because of the way that it sets there in the Middle East. It's set up high. You always go up because it's high. It was because of revelation that Paul went. He's still getting direct revelation. He got direct revelation on the Damascus Road. He got direct revelation in the house of Ananias. He got direct revelation for three years in Arabia. He's been getting direct revelation from the Lord for the 14 years of his ministry. And now another of these rather common revelations from heaven comes. And that's the reason he goes to Jerusalem. God told Paul to go to Jerusalem and Paul obeyed. We see in this, this passage, in these, these, these first few verses, the reverence that Paul had. Paul had reverence for God, and thus he obeyed what God told him to do. Paul also had reverence for the cause. He wanted to see the true, unvarnished gospel conveyed to save, to, to save sinners. He didn't want it to be muddled with any kind of legalism or any other kind of lies. Because to add to or to take away from the gospel is to preach and teach a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul had respect for and reverence for God, respect and reverence for the cause, and Paul had respect and reverence for the leadership in Jerusalem. Look what it says in, in verse 2. And I laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. So Paul lays out to them the gospel. He lays out to them the gospel that he preaches to the Gentiles, them meaning the church there. And Acts 15 says the elders and the apostles is who he went to first. I submitted to them the gospel which I preached. Why did he go to the leadership first? Because verse 4 tells us that there were Judaizers intermingled into that crowd there at the Jerusalem council. Satan had sent spies into there, 
crept in to appear as brothers to go in and to disrupt, to go in and to dismay, to confuse. And so Paul, instead of going to the church and, 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 and trying to uh, 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 get people behind him, no, he goes to the leadership first. He went to the very top. And then when the very top approved him, then they would convey it to the rest of the church. Paul had respect for the leadership there. And Paul said, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach. God knew the problems. God knew the Judaizers would be there. He knew the, the, the horrible damage that the Judaizers were doing and with their mandatory circumcision and legalism. Very much like forms of Christianity today that try to tell people they cannot be saved without baptism. That try to tell people that they cannot be saved apart from other type of works. That is a false gospel. Baptism, though important, and we talked about that the day that uh, Melissa was baptized. Baptism is very important. It is the first step that a person is to take after they come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And what it does is it outwardly displays what Christ and the, and, and the triune God has done on the inside of the person. When we tell them that they've buried with Him in baptism unto death, raised with Him in newness of life, it is a ritual that shows the world, I am set apart to God. I'm no longer like the old person. I'm dead. I am now walking in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. Very important. But it does not matter if you get baptized in every baptismal pool, every river, every creek, every home pool, or if you want to charter a flight to Israel right now and get baptized in the Jordan River, the very same river the Lord Jesus was baptized in. Baptism does not save an individual. And a person does not have to be saved, does not have to be baptized in order to be saved. They should desire to be greatly. That should be the greatest of their desires when they first come to faith and repentance in Christ. I know I got to go in that pool because Jesus did. And they want to obey the Lord. But baptism does not save a person. Who do we look to? Is that proof? The thief on the cross who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus didn't say, hey, fellas, let him down. He needs to get dunked in some water before he can die. No, he said today, this day, you shall be with me in paradise. It is the faith that saves a person. We are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in who Christ was, who He is, and who He is right now in heaven, that He's coming again, that that Christ was God in the flesh, and that Christ lived sinlessly, and that He died vicariously on the cross, and that He was raised again the third day. And our trust in Him takes the work that He did on the cross and applies it to us. In my favorite verse in the Bible, I know you probably get tired of hearing me quote it, is Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace, grace you have been saved through faith. And I love the next part because it says, and not of yourselves. All of salvation is a work of God. 
It's a complete and total work of God. The sinless life, the substitutionary death and the resurrection and even the very faith to believe in it for the salvation of your soul is a gift of God saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast when we get to heaven there aren't going to be people boasting man I'm glad I held on as long as I did Man, I sure am glad that I, you know, I just held on as, as long as I did that I, I, I never wavered. No, the only bragging that will be done is on that of the Lord. It will be glory is the Lamb. It will be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty for all of eternity. And that is what Paul wanted to convey. That is what Paul wanted to get across. Not this legalistic stuff, not Jesus plus something else equals salvation. That salvation comes by Christ and Christ alone. So Paul comes, and the first thing that he does to that council is he submits to them the gospel that he preaches. He said, I laid it out to them. I laid it out for the leadership and I laid it out for the whole church to hear. For the leadership, I did so in private. I did so in private for them who were of reputation. And we are told in verse 9 who those men are. They were the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. They were the, to, the, the, the pillars, the reputed pillars of the early church. They were the ones of reputation, the pillars. Paul said, I went to the inner circle. And I told them, I laid before them the gospel which I preach. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say there in verse 2, lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. Paul is saying, I wanted their affirmation. I wanted them to know that the same gospel that they preach the same gospel that they were taught by Christ when they walked with Him for three years and then when they spent another 40 days after His resurrection with Him, that same gospel that they preach is the same one that I'm preaching. The same one that He taught to them, He taught it to me. And He says, I would do so that I might not run in vain. He said, I wanted their affirmation. I wanted their affirmation. I wanted to hear it from their lips. He said, I've never doubted the truth that the Lord gave me. I heard it from His lips. I've never doubted His power. I've never doubted the power of the gospel. For these 17 years at this point that He had been saved, He says, I've seen it in my own life. I mean, how else can you explain the, the, the whole case of chapter 1? How else could you explain a person who was a persecutor of the gospel all of a sudden turns around and then preaches it? Paul says, I know the power of the gospel. I know the truth of it, but I want the other apostles to give me their stamp of approval. That way we're on the same page. And we see later on in the passage, they get that approval with the right hand of fellowship. Point number two, verses three through six, more, well, really three through five, we see his resolve. We see Paul's resolve. Look what it says beginning in verse three. So it says, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Not even Titus. 
who was a Greek, he was a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. That's the answer. That's the answer, Paul says. Let's not talk about theoretical things. Let's talk about practicality. He brings Titus. Titus a Gentile. Titus a living illustration. Paul calls him his true child in the faith, true child in common faith. Titus is a believer, transformed, possessor of the Holy Spirit, companion of Paul and Barnabas. Paul says, I brought Titus. Paul makes it personal. He says, here, right here in Titus is a living, redeemed, spirit-indwelt Gentile who has not been circumcised, who has not been made to conform to ancestral traditions or mosaic ceremonies. Paul, Paul says to the Galatians, though he was a Greek, he was not compelled to be circumcised while in Jerusalem in the presence of the apostles. Because when a person truly, and I mean truly, comes to faith in Christ. They don't understand much at first, but they have one desire within them. They want to obey the Lord. They want to obey the Lord, and it is a desire that is within them that stays with them the rest of their life till God calls them home. They want to obey the Lord. May not, won't always get it right, We still stumble into sin, but we desire to obey the Lord. So Titus desired uh, desired to obey the Lord, but he was not compelled. He was not compelled to go through a ritualistic act that didn't make sense. A ritualistic act that was, was not necessary for salvation. He knew that Christ had saved his soul. Christ had finished, completed. He was, it was all done. In Christ, in the finished work of Christ and Titus knew there's no need to go through this act. So Paul says Titus was not compelled even in the presence of the apostles and even in the presence of Judaizers. Again, verse 4 tells us they were there in the midst. They were there in the midst of the Jerusalem council. So even in the face of public pressure, Titus was not uh, compelled to be circumcised, and Paul was not compelled to change his message. They had resolve. They had spiritual resolve. They had spiritual backbone to say, no, Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. That's, that was a devastating blow to the Judaizers because the Judaizers were looking for someone to corroborate their view. And they failed to get it. If the Jewish apostles there in Jerusalem, if they didn't require Gentile circumcision, then how could the Judaizers continue to uh, require it? In verse 4, look what it says. But this was because of false brothers secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. Judaizers pretending to be Christians, they came in to spy out. They came in by stealth to spy out and to sabotage the true gospel. Ultimately, these are agents of the devil. Satan sent false uh, brothers pretending to be born-again Christians in to infiltrate the body of Christ and to confuse the body into thinking that circumcision or, or, or the ceremonial law, keeping it was required to be saved. This has been the work of Satan all through time. This is not something that just started with the inception of the New Testament church. 
This is not something that was limited to Antioch or Galatia or Jerusalem. This is something that this has been Satan's work since his rebellion and banishment from heaven. His mission, disrupt, dismay, and confuse. To twist the word of God to hinder the work of God. And we have, I've said this before, we have good reason to believe. That's why Satan and his demons hate mankind so much. Because God loves mankind so much. Therefore, Satan, as the roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may destroy. The Judaizers were sent by Satan to cause the church members there to doubt the truth. Does that sound familiar? It should, especially for those of you who've been with us on Wednesday night, sounds very familiar to the garden. Very familiar to the serpent in the garden. Satan, these false teachers, false brothers, tear among wheat that are sent by the devil. They don't just come right out and say, hey, we're here to do the work of the devil. Turn you away from God. They don't come out and say that. It is a slow process of lacing truth with lies. Remember, Eve was comfortable with that serpent speaking. When that thing began to talk, it didn't frighten her. She didn't run away. She was comfortable listening to the serpent. Can I say to you this morning, our nation is comfortable with sin. We have been exposed to it for generations now. Not all at once. Not all at once. Because it's like the, the, the science experiment with the frog. You take a frog and you put a frog in a pot of boiling water and he's immediately going to jump out. But if you take that same frog and you put it in a pot of room temperature water and you slowly turn up that heat to the point of boiling, you do it slowly. That frog will stay there till you, bur- till you boil it to death. That frog becomes accustomed to the temperature of that water. And each time there's a change, he doesn't notice it. It just happens, and it happens without him being aware of it. The United States of America has become accustomed to sin because of our gradual exposure to it for decades. Not weeks, not months, but decades Satan has sent tares to come in and convince the nation that sins that will send people to hell are okay and acceptable. Because of television slash entertainment, because of the public school system, because of the overall secularization of the nation. And I know many of you have probably heard that before. What does that mean? This is a good, just simple definition of what the secularization means. It means let's try to do this without God. Let's try to do this without God. And the nation has seen this over and over and over for decades and now we're comfortable with it we're comfortable with things like people living together prior to getting married if they even get married at all 
Marriage is not even thought about in many cases now. People get married later in life and some don't even get married at all. But the Bible says that God commands for a man to leave his father and his mother and to be joined to his wife, not his girlfriend. And there are two flagship sins that our nation is known for that has destroyed our nation, continuing to destroy it, and bring us under the just judgment of God. First is the Holocaust of abortion. We in the United States have the blood of over 60 million image bearers of God. We have that blood on our hands. For 50 years since the inception of Rome, And even since the overturning of it last year, not much has changed. Daily, from the beginning of the business day to the close of business, that number of 60 million increases somewhere between 3 and 5,000. And it's destroying our nation. And yet there are people who claim to be Christian that will lobby and argue and say that that is a good thing to keep on the books. And then our nation is also being destroyed by the perversity of homosexuality. No longer as a nation are we shocked and appalled by that such a perverse and destructive lifestyle. Why? Because like the Judaizers, the devil crept in. The devil sent spy who, who sent those Judaizers to spy in and, 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 and spy out the Christian freedom, pervert the true gospel. Satan has sent nice and funny entertainment into the homes of the nation by way of television and movies. And I'll call her name. Ellen DeGeneres is a prime example. I'm sure she's a very nice lady. But for years, people invited her into their home every afternoon, five days a week. And what does that do that makes people comfortable with that sin? And now every program, every movie has a character in it of that persuasion. They have to. Almost, And it's even seeped into country music videos to glorify that perverse lifestyle. There's one that I stumbled upon recently. I won't tell you the guy's name because I don't want you to go looking for it. It is vile. And it is desensitizing the culture even further. And now remember this. I've, all, I've said this many, many times. Sin takes you farther than you wanted to go and keeps you longer than you wanted to stay there. And as we have seen, it does not just stop with the just mere acceptance of same-sex relationships or even same-sex mirage. There is polygamy. You see that with sister wives, right? Glorifying, glorifying a, a man having multiple wives. Then there's things like polyamory where groups of people or in a relationship together. Even, even sologamy, where people say, hey, can't nobody love me like and like I can, so I'm going to marry myself. And it goes on and on and on. And the ultimate end result of that agenda is pedophilia. 
the lies of the satanically influenced culture say, no, love is love and God is love. And therefore, God condones it all. And they may not be seduced to believe that pedophilia is a good thing, but they, they deny that that is the inevitable end of the agenda. If that's so, then why somebody tell me why there's drag queens coming to libraries reading to children, coming into schools. Why do they parade down the street now and say we're here, we're blank, insert derogatory name that they use, and then they finish it off by saying, and we're coming for your children. How do, and you're thinking, well, how does this apply to Judaizers perverting the gospel? Because there are some people that consider themselves Christian. Some people that even stand behind the pulpit and uh, uh, take on the role as pastor. And they believe that God condones those lifestyles just as He does one man and one woman. Romans chapter 1, verse 35 describes this. It says, although they know the righteous requirement of God. They know what the Word of God says. They know God's requirement. They know what God commands. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice. I realize that for many of us, you know people, you're related to people that align themselves with that lifestyle. They're caught up in the lies of the devil. They need to be loved they need to be shown kindness, but more than anything, they need the truth. More than anything, they need the truth of the gospel. They need the truth of the gospel because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 still says and will always say, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is just a guarantee hardwired into the very fabric of Scripture because of who God is. But praise God, although that says that in verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, there's a verse 11 that says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What does that mean? As long as a person has breath within their body, they're not beyond the reach of God. They're not beyond the reach of God and they're not beyond the reach of His gospel. Bathe them in prayer. Tell them the truth. Love them enough to have the difficult conversations like we talked about last week because there's still a God who saves sinners like the Apostle Paul. So the Judaizers crept in. They crept in to spy out the freedom, lace the truth with lies. They were secretly smuggled in by Satan. They came into the church. They came in to corrupt the truth. They came in to sow tares. They came in secretly. They came in to attack freedom from the law. What do we mean by freedom from the law? Freedom from the law is a way of salvation. Freedom from the external ceremonies which the Old Testament law required. Freedom from Jewish traditions. Freedom from works as a means of sanctification rather than love. 
The Christian is free in Christ. Free from any external ceremonies. Free from any rituals. The child of God is free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. And His words call the law of liberty. Paul says in verse 5, we were resolved not to yield in subjection for even a moment. Listen, truth does not waver. Truth does not cut deals. Truth is not subjective. And truth never fears a challenge. Paul and Titus did not yield in their position of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And you've heard me say on many times that there are a lot of things that we as Christians can disagree on. We can disagree on eschatology, on last, last things. We can disagree on the, 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 what's going to bring about the return of the Lord. We can disagree on, 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 uh, uh, even mode of baptism. I'm, I think the, I think our Presbyterian brothers are wrong. They need to be immersed, but that's not an essential, essential Christian, uh, 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 Doctrine, But there are some things that are essential that we can't disagree on. We can't disagree on the Bible. A person must believe that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. That these are God's words that God has spoken. And these, this book contains His words. And do you know there are men that stand behind pulpits that do not believe that the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. One of them passes a two-point charge of Methodist churches in Martinsville who will outright say he does not believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. There's some good lessons in it for us. There's some good things that we can learn. No, the Bible is is God's word. We must be, we, in order to be truly saved, in order to be a Christian, we must agree on the essential of the Bible, the deity of Christ. Agree, we must agree on the physical return of Christ. We must agree on final judgment. We must agree that there does exist a heaven. There does exist a hell. And of course, salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. To those that affirm anything different, you and I have to have the resolve about us to say, that's not right. That's not right. We need that resolve to go through difficult times. Mike touched on in Sunday school this morning about pastors that got arrested during COVID just for, just for conducting worship. Men like James Coates and Tim Stevens who were persecuted in Canada just for simply holding worship. They are living examples to us of Romans 13, how we do obey government until government commands us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. And then when that line is crossed, we yield to God and not man. The battle is, is, is sadly not over for our brothers in Canada. We must keep them in prayer. And also for our brothers in the state of Michigan as well. I've got a friend of mine who recently left... Uh, the, where I work, and he took a, an assistant pastor job at a, at a church in uh, Michigan, and I, I, I reached out to him in the last couple of weeks and said, you know what your governor's doing up there? The governor's trying to legalize and criminalize this, this pronoun business that if you don't use a person's preferred pronouns, you get charged with a felony. Christian, we don't partake in that. 
We don't play that game of make-believe. We have to have the resolve of Paul. We have to have the resolve of, uh, of Titus to say we will not yield. Why did Paul not yield? He says, well, he, he, why didn't Paul say, well, you know what? You just believe how you want to believe and I'll believe how I want to believe. No, because the souls of men and women are at stake because of what he says in verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. So that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. That is why Paul remained steadfast. Because truth was at stake. The truth of the gospel was at stake. The souls of men and women were at stake. Why should we not yield in subjection to the lies of Satan that seduce the culture and creep into the church? So that people will see our steadfastness. They will see our resolve. Even if we have to endure ridicule and hardship and mistreatment so that supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit, people's eyes will be open to the truth of the gospel and that the gospel would remain in them so that the true gospel would remain in them. That is why Paul wrote this letter the end of verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. I want to close with the words of John, Dr. John MacArthur. He finished a sermon on this passage and he said, I can't think of a more pastoral statement than that final statement. He said, my prayer, my desire is that in all that we say, the result is the truth of the gospel remains, in, remains with you. I do not know how much longer I will be here. I do not know that. None of us do. Anytime the Lord wants me to go to heaven, I'm ready to go. But the one thing I would love to be certain about is that when I'm not here, the truth of the gospel will remain with you because this is the only message of salvation. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and how I've unworthily tried to unfold it. God, help us to be resolved. Help us to be steadfast in the ever-changing world that we live in. It's not changing for the better, Lord. We pray that we would be conduits of that, that we would be conduits of good change, of change for you, for the kingdom, for the good of the kingdom, for the good of the cause of Christ, that we would be messengers of the true gospel, for it is the true gospel that saves sinners. We commit this to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.